You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Have you ever been given a gift that was uh, embarrassingly generous and incredibly thoughtful? And when you, when you open the gift, when you saw the gift, you, you hated it? On his 80th birthday, Winston Churchill, who was an amateur artist himself, received a gift. All of the other members of parliament and the House of Lords chipped in and they commissioned a world-renowned artist to paint a portrait of their prime minister. And so they, uh, Graham Sutherland, the artist, and Winston Churchill spent hours uh, together. And uh, when the portrait was finally shown to uh, Winston Churchill, this incredibly, uh, a painting for a painter, something that cost so much money, it was so thoughtful to celebrate his 80th birthday. When Winston Churchill saw the painting, he hated it. The plan for the painting was that it was to, it was to be hung in Winston Churchill's home. Uh, until he died, and then it was going to receive a place of prominence uh, in the House of Commons. Uh, but it never made it to the House of Commons. In fact, the only version of the painting that we uh, see hung on any wall are, are, are charcoal sketches like this one that were used in, in preparation. You see, not shortly after uh, the painting was given to the Churchill family, it was It was destroyed. Churchill's issue with the painting was not that it was bad art. Uh, it, it, it wasn't that it was a, a poorly painted. Winston Churchill hated the painting because he said it was too accurate. It looked too much like him. He wanted a painting that was sort of similar to the other paintings in the House of Commons where the prime ministers are standing in these knightly robes with these special hats and they had him sit in a chair wearing a suit. He was offended by the whole process and despised the painting. The issue was that it was just too accurate. You see, we all have this version of ourselves Regardless of what the mirror says, regardless of what photographs say, we, always, we have this sort of image of ourselves in our minds. It's not just related to appearance. There was a survey done among American drivers, and they just needed to answer the question, do you think that you are a better than average driver? Of all of the drivers in the United States, do you think that you are better at driving than 50% of them? Do you know how many people thought that they were better than average drivers? 93%. Do the math. That can't be true. And yet we assume these things about ourselves. We have this, this illusion about who we are. We have this illusion about how we look. We have this illusion about what we are able to do. We don't see ourselves Clearly, one of the reasons why we get ourselves into trouble is because it's not just that we don't see our situation clearly, it's that we don't see ourselves clearly. 
That's one of the reasons why I'm so thankful for the Word of God, because the Word of God not only tells me about God, it also tells me about myself. And we need so desperately to see ourselves clearly. And so today we're going to turn to the book of Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now. We want to make sure everyone has a chance to follow along. The book of Revelation, it was written to help us to see clearly. The, the word Revelation gives us a hint about what the book is about. It's supposed to reveal things. It's supposed to uncover things that are normally hidden. And Revelation 1 verse 1 says that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who is doing the revealing. In Revelation chapter 1, there's a revelation of Jesus himself. He shows us who he is so that we can see Jesus clearly. But Revelation uh, is intended to uh, be written to these seven churches. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, it says, uh, John, who wrote these things down, John, to the seven churches that are uh, in Asia. If you look down at chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus tells him, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Uh, these uh, places, these were actual cities in, in present-day Turkey. There have been uh, numerous archaeological excavations in these areas, all of these cities once existed. All of them had churches that were planted and that were being built up at the time that Revelation was being written. And when we transition from Revelation chapter 1 and this incredible vision of Jesus Christ into chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus has specific things to say to these specific churches. And because the Word of God is living and is active, that since Jesus has spoken, we can trust and believe that He is still speaking. That what He had to say to those original seven churches reverberates across geography all over the world. And chronologically, so that it speaks just as much as it did then as it does now. And so we're going to look at the last letter today. We're going to look at, beginning at uh, verse 14 of the third chapter of Revelation, a, a letter written to a church in a place called Laodicea. And God had some things that needed to be said to the church at Laodicea, and we believe that God has some things that need to be said to the church in Brampton. And so we're going to ask him to, uh, to speak right now. So let's do that uh, together. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this privilege of gathering in your name, of hearing reports of what's happening through one of our missionaries and how you are expanding your kingdom and, and how your gospel is bearing fruit. God, thank you that we've had a privilege to lift our voices to you in worship. And I pray now, God, that as, as, as we have lifted our voices, I pray now that we would hear your voice speaking to us uh, through your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak so clearly and so profoundly, Lord. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse 14 says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Here's a couple of Wikipedia facts about uh, Laodicea. Um, first of all, these are, these are not a, a modern masterpiece by, by any stretch of the imagination, but um, first of all, it was a very wealthy city. In fact, it was the, the, the most wealthy of all of these uh, seven cities. 
and it was on a, a trade route, and so it quickly became a, a banking center. It was so wealthy that when a massive earthquake just really toppled most of the cities in this area, the Roman government was, you know, willing to, to provide aid and to help uh, rebuild infrastructure and was making financial commitments to these different cities so that they could be rebuilt. The Laodiceans turned the Romans down. They said, oh, we'll rebuild it ourselves. We'll finance the whole thing ourselves. They just had that much wealth to be able to rebuild the entire city after that kind of of a disaster. The second thing uh, you need to know is that they, they, had a, they had a medical school there. And uh, they had developed something called a Phrygian powder, which was, that's like an eye drop, which is like a, like an, a salve for eye disease. And so the, the, this area, Laodicea, was known for just being progressive in scientific research and medical training, that sort of thing. And then lastly, they, they again, uh, paid a close attention to the way that their sheep were, were breeding and feeding and how they were caring for them. And they managed to breed this, 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 this kind of sheep that, that produced this jet black wool. And so they had this huge textile industry in Laodicea. They were, they were well known for this wool that was used for clothing or for a carpet. And this is the church that, that Jesus is speaking to. In verse 14, it says, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Each of the letters begin with Jesus sort of describing himself. He calls himself the amen. Amen is what Christians tend to say at the end of their prayers. And amen is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew word for yes or, or for truth. And so when you, when you pray or you hear someone else pray and you say amen, then you're saying that is true, it, it, that is so. And it, it simply means yes. A number of times in the Bible, Jesus says, a truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, in the Greek, he's simply saying, amen, amen, I say to you. So Jesus is saying that he is the truth. And, and that, that's reassuring for us because if we're going to see ourselves clearly, we don't need flattery. We don't need someone to sort of beat around the bush. Jesus is going to tell us the truth about ourselves so that we can see ourselves uh, clearly. That's why he's described as the, the faithful and true witness there in verse 14. That he's going to tell us the truth. And then he's described as the beginning of God's creation. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses tried to twist this verse to, to, to talk about Jesus being created by the Father. That, that's not what's being said here. Jesus mentions a number of times that he's the beginning. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And the word there, the Greek word is arche. It's where we get the word architect for. The, the architect for a building is not part of the building. He's clearly separate from the building. He, he's the beginning, but it all began... At his drawing board, it all began because of his creativity and his, his work. And so Jesus is the beginning of creation that we see around, not part of it, but he had uh, designed it and created it. And now he is going to, describing who he is, now he's going to speak to the church. He says in verse 15, he says, I know your works. And he's going to talk about how they're behaving and and. And he's going to show them some, some things that they need to see about themselves. He's going to show them three things. Here's the first one. When 
Jesus is in our life, Jesus helps us to see clearly that we are proud. Jesus helps me see that I am proud. He says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now normally this verse is read in such a way that describes a, a hot as being a, a, a mature Christian who's on fire for the Lord. And cold is someone who's indifferent to spiritual things. And they don't care about God. They're an unbeliever. And that to be lukewarm is to be caught somewhere uh, in the middle. And, and many people use this verse to sort of challenge apathetic Christians and say, you better not be lukewarm, man. Jesus is going to spit you out of his mouth. And the, the teaching is, is, it goes something like this, that God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son of God and the Holy Spirit would actually prefer that an apathetic Christian was not a Christian at all. That he'd prefer that you would be cold or hot. But I would ask you to read the passage carefully. And I would ask you to find me the part in this passage that shows that hot means a fired up Christian. And that cold means a non-Christian. It's not there, is it? That's something that we've put in this verse that actually isn't in this verse. When you think about the heart of God... And his love for his children. Do you really think that God would look on his son or on his daughter and say, I would prefer that you were not a Christian? Do you really think that God would say, I would rather that you were an unbeliever? That doesn't sound right to me. And so what is going on here? What is, what is being uh, described? What does it mean when Jesus says, you are lukewarm? Well, there's a little bit of a geography that we need to understand. Here's sort of a simple map of Laodicea and the region surrounding it. This is the, the, the blue line there. That's the Lycus River. And there were uh, three cities very close to one another. North of Laodicea, about as far away as Caledon uh, is from, uh, from us right now, is is was Hierapolis. Now Hierapolis had hot springs like Banff, Alberta. And it was used for medicinal purposes, this hot water that people would bathe in and create medicine from. It was very useful because it was hot. Colossae, which was, was, which was further, about, about 10 miles to the, to the east, was, was a mountainous region. And they had, about as far away as Woodbridge would be from here. And they were known for very, very cold water. For, uh, that, that came down from a mountain a spring. But Laodicea actually didn't have a water source at all. Their water was piped in, so they actually had lukewarm water. Here's a picture of one of the pipes from their uh, aqueduct. So for miles and miles, water would, be, would come in through a pipeline. And by the time, whether it was hot or cold, at the, end of the, at the end of the line, by the time it made it to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And it was filled with sediment. And it was, it was just gross. 
And everyone knew that Laodicea, like Laodicea is a great town to visit, man. It's wealthy. They got the textile industry. They got the medical school, but just don't drink the water. That's how Laodicea was, was known. You see, hot is useful. Cold is useful. Lukewarm is just gross. You see, Jesus says here that you are lukewarm. He says, he says that your lukewarmness is causing me to want to spit you out of my mouth. Now, verse 17 explains what is making them lukewarm. Verse 17 begins with the word for. Context always guides our interpretation of the Bible. That word for is like the word because. It's going to explain what he means when he calls them lukewarm. He's calling them useless. In verse 17 he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Jesus helps me see that I am proud. There's pride in what they're saying. They're saying, I'm rich. And I pro- I've done, notice the, notice the I. I've done this. I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. And Jesus is saying, your proud attitude makes me want to spit you out of my mouth. We all need to come to terms with the reality that our pride makes Jesus puke. Jesus is not challenging this church because they're apathetic. Jesus is challenging this church because they are arrogant. And they're thinking, wow, Jesus must be so glad to have us on his team. I mean, look at all of our wealth. Look at all the resources. Look at, look at all of our intelligence. We've got all, this do- all these doctors who are a part of our church. Look at how industrious we are. All of, the, all of the hardworking people in our textile industry. We have got it together. And Jesus says, no, you don't. You see, the drinking practices in the Roman world were very similar to our drinking practices. Chilly morning, like this morning, you go to Tim Hortons, you want a piping hot double-double. Three or four months ago, in the middle of July, when you're roasting, you don't want want a double-double, you want an ice cap. But, when you go over to the arena and put your coffee down on the bench, and then go skate around with your family a little bit, and then come back and take a swig of that coffee. Whoa! It's not hot anymore. It's gone lukewarm. Or when, you're, when someone hands you an, an ice cap and then you go finish cutting the lawn and then you come back and it's all, you know how ice caps turn into that gelatinous whatever it is? And, and all of a sudden, it's a lot less desirable, isn't it? You see... I'm no scientist, but I know a thing or two about the second law of thermodynamics. That things are always deteriorating. That hot things, unless there is something that is providing energy to keep that thing hot, hot things always tend to get cooler. And unless there's something that's keeping cold things cold, cold things always seem to get warmer. And what's true about water in Laodicea What's true about beverages from Tim Hortons is true about pride in our own lives. Whether you're hot or cold, both are useful. But we all have a tendency to subtly drift towards pride. To to 
begin by saying things like, look what God is doing. And then to subtly say things like, look what is happening. And then to suddenly start saying, look what I am doing. It's so easy. It's so easy for all of us to slip into pride. To think that we have prospered. To think that we need nothing. Adam and Eve in the garden started out, whether you want to describe them as hot or whether you describe them as cold. Understanding that God was the creator of all things, but pride started to drift them towards lukewarmness, towards thinking that they didn't need God. And they chose to eat the fruit so that they could replace him. Pride is so, so subtle. So we all need to see clearly. We all need to see and understand that all of us are susceptible to pride. And that Jesus wants to help us to see that. But it's hard to see, isn't it? It's hard to recognize pride in our own lives. It's like that mayonnaise on the man's mustache across the table from you, and he's just talking away, and you just can't get your eyes off of it. You're trying to listen. And the loving thing to do is to just say, oh, excuse me, you've got, you've got a little, oh, no, no, over, over a little bit more. And those are awkward moments, aren't they? They're embarrassing moments, but those moments need to happen. It's hard for us to detect pride in our own lives, which is why I'm so thankful for the Word of God, which is like a mirror, which shows me who I am, as James chapter 1 says, which is why I'm thankful for the people of God who stir me up to love and good deeds, who help me see where I am blind. I'm so thankful for the Spirit of God and how when He works through the people of God and the Word of God brings the conviction that I need to acknowledge that there is pride in my life. We all need to understand. We all need to understand how subtle pride is. How unless we are carefully, intentionally staying hot or staying cold, we will drift towards lukewarmness and thinking that this world is about us and not about God. It's hard to see. Here's the second thing that Jesus helps us see. He helps me see that I am blind. I'm blind. I can't see the mayonnaise on my mustache. Look, look back with me at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Make note of this. Not realizing not realize we just don't see it Jesus says we're, we're we're saying this thing we're acting like this Jesus says I know your works the way that you're working you're you're saying I'm I'm rich and I prospered I don't need anything but Jesus says you don't realize that in behaving like that you are actually he says you are wretched pitiable poor blind and naked we don't see these things ourselves. We need Jesus to help us see ourselves clearly. We may not like it, but he is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. And he tells us the way things truly are. And he speaks right to the church at Laodicea. Remember, remember these things about Laodicea? How they were, they were wealthy and how they had created that Phrygian powder to help people to see. And how they had uh, the... the that textile industry creating clothing. And then what does Jesus say to them in verse 17? He says, you're wretched and pitiable. And then he calls them poor 
and blind and naked. You guys got all your banks and you think that you're so wealthy and you rebuilt your city on your own. You're actually, you're actually quite poor in the way that you're behaving right now. And you think that you're so smart and you're able to help other people see, but you yourselves are walking in blindness. Open your eyes, he's saying. And he says, you think you're, you're well clothed, but you're actually behaving in a way that's so shameful. It's like you're walking around naked. Now Jesus is not like the, the pundits and critics in our world today who are really good at pointing out problems, but not so great at compassionately helping with solutions. That not, that's not Jesus. Jesus helps us to see where we fall short, and then immediately gives us the solution. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So in verse 17 he says, hey, you're actually poor, blind, and naked. And then in verse 18 he says, you're poor, but come and get some gold. He says, you're blind, but I've got real salve for your eyes to help you see yourself clearly. And you're naked, but here are the white garments. Here, be clothed in my righteousness. This is our Savior. This is our Savior who loves us enough to let us see how we're behaving, to let us see the depth of our own sin and how off track we can, we've become, how lukewarm we've become. Now some people spend a lot of time living in verse 17. Some people think that the way to really fight pride in our lives is to just say, I'm wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I'm this horrible person. How could God ever love me? How could he ever? Listen, as soon as Jesus says verse 17, he's already moving on to verse 18. Jesus doesn't want us to dwell on those things. He wants us to see ourselves clearly and then see him clearly. That's why he says in verse 18, buy from me. Buy from me, he says. I've got what you need. You don't even think you need it, but you need it so badly. Buy it from me. How do we buy it from him? Listen, Isaiah 55 talks about buying things without money. How can we buy gold from Jesus? How can we buy this eye salve? How can we buy these white garments? Well, we can buy them because he's already paid the price with his life. Think about it. Think about the events of everything that transpired on Good Friday when Jesus was crucified. Think about wretched and pitiable as he's hanging there on the cross. Think about think about poor in the way that he was treated, being numbered among the transgressors. Think about blind, as he was blindfolded when the soldiers beat him. Think about naked, when he was stripped bare and hung on the cross. You see, we have a Savior who, who after allowing us to see our own shame and our own guilt for our own behavior, then takes that shame and that guilt and takes it upon himself on the cross. And who after removing our shame and our guilt, then clothes us in white garments. His righteousness. White garments are all over the book of Revelation. He covers our shame because he suffered and died for us on 
the cross. Buy for me gold refined by fire. Salve to see clearly. Garments to cover our shame. So loved ones, we need to understand that we are so often blind to these things. And what does Jesus do? He points them out and then his, he reminds us of the gospel. We need the message of the gospel in our lives every day. We need to see ourselves clearly. That apart from Christ, I am a sinner. But Christ has forgiven me and saved me. And now I am clothed in white robes. I used to have nothing and now I have this treasure. I have been given gold. And I used to be so blind, but now I see because Jesus has changed me. We need to remind ourselves of those things every day. That is how the hot beverage stays hot. That is how the cold beverage stays refreshingly cold. That is how we stop ourselves from drifting towards lukewarmness. But we need to understand that we're, that we're blind. We need to have a healthy amount of self-suspicion. Not always trusting our judgment, but inviting the Spirit to lead us. Inviting God's Word to speak to us. Inviting God's people to counsel us because we are so often blind. Then in verse 20, look what he says. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Verse 19 is one of my favorite verses in all of God's word. It's, it's easy to think about the church of Laodicea and Jesus wanting to spit them out of his mouth and calling them pitiable and poor and blind and naked and all of these things. It's easy for us to think that Jesus, just, he's just barely putting up with these people. Like, come on, get it together, Laodicea. What's the matter with you? Jesus says, the reason why I'm telling you this is because I love you. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. We're familiar with the term discipline. We use it when we talk about raising our children, a correcting and guiding in the right direction. We're not so familiar with the word reprove. We still use discipline in everyday language. We don't really use the word reprove. Reprove is a really important word. There really isn't an everyday word that we use to, to describe this concept. To reprove someone is to call to their attention that they're doing something wrong when they don't realize it. To, to open someone's eyes to see, well, I, I didn't know I was doing that. Jesus loves us. He loves us so much that he, he, he wants to deal with our blindness. He wants to reprove us. To show us things. I remember a time in my life, one of the most painful times in my life was also one of the most purifying times in my life. Where there were a number of sins in my life that I knew that I was struggling with and wrestling with. And, and God shone his spotlight into the depth and darkness of my heart and, and showed me those things. But over the course of several days and weeks after that, he just kept showing me more 
and more of, of, of my, own, my own crookedness, of my own sinfulness, of my own pride. Pride was at the absolute core of it all. And I had become so blind. I had made so many excuses and so many rationalizations. And I did so much crying and so much journaling and so much repenting. And I'd never, I'd, I'd never, I had never felt worse in my life. But I had never felt more loved in my life. Because I, I saw it as the mercy of God. I saw it as Him. Just those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. And then I love this part. So be zealous and repent. So that when God shows us something about ourselves, we are to be zealous and turn away from that. That's what repentance means. It means you're heading in the direction of sin and you turn around, you repent and start moving towards your relationship with God and walking in His ways. And we are to be zealous in repenting. Listen, we don't repent so that Jesus will love us. We repent because he know, we know he already does. Because he reproves and disciplines those whom he loves, that's why we're supposed to be zealous and repent. We've got to turn, and we've got to turn as quickly as we can, as intentionally as we can. Pastor Kai Ballantyne up at Harvest Bible Chapel in Muskoka describes this so beautifully. He says, you know what, sometimes repentance, it's easy to turn around, sometimes it's harder. If you're riding a bicycle down Chinkuzi Road, it's pretty easy to turn that thing around. If you're driving an 18-wheeler tractor trailer down Chinkuzi Road, it's going to be hard to turn it around. That's why you might need someone to help you uh, back up a little bit. But the, the issue is not how easy it is to turn. The issue is, are you being zealous? Are you being intentional and passionate Recognizing how much God loves you, is that driving you to say no to sin and to say yes to him? Listen, some things, it's hard to turn around. Certain patterns of thinking, certain addictions, certain bitternesses, certain fears or anxieties, certain lusts. There's certain, it's, it's, it's hard work, but he loves us. And he, he, he tells us to be zealous in our repentance. He tells us that we are love. We're, we're, we're proud, we're blind, but we are loved. Verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, this is not a verse that's intended for unbelievers as it's so often used. Certainly, Jesus is... is is eager to, to hear an unbeliever, invite, invite him into their life. But verse 20 is clearly written to Christians. This is the church at Laodicea. And they are doing church. They are having worship services. They are hearing sermons. They are engaged in ministry. And yet Jesus is locked outside. Jesus, who wants to dwell among the lampstands, who wants to be among the church. The church at Laodicea, because of their pride, had actually, had actually left him out. 
but it's so simple on how to turn around, isn't it? Jesus says, just open the door. If you, if you hear my voice, he says, that voice like rushing waters, it's my prayer every week at Harvest Bible Chapel that people, people would not hear the voice of Ted Duncan, but they would hear the voice of Jesus Christ speaking to their heart. And notice this promise. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He, he, he wants to have unity with us. He wants to eat with us, to dwell among us. Then verse 21 the, the, and verse 22, this letter ends like all of the letters in chapter 2 and, verse, and chapter 3. The letters all follow a very similar uh, structure. Jesus says something about himself, and then he, he normally compliments the church. He gives them some sort of commendation about things that they're doing well. Not so with Laodicea, but that's what he normally does. Then he points out some areas for correction, ways that they need to change, and then, then he challenges them, and then he makes a promise. Something about conquering is at the end of every letter. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Notice, notice how Jesus says, I will come to you. I'm knocking on the door. I want to sit down at your table. I want to eat with you. But then he says, I also want to take you. After I've come to you, I want to take you from where you're sitting to where I'm sitting. Before the throne. And then if you look at chapter 4 and chapter 5, it's all about the throne. The throne of God in heaven. And that's the promise to those who conquer. Now all of the other churches, I mentioned how each church was given sort of a promise about conquering. Most of the other churches had some sort of an enemy. Whether it be a false teacher or maybe it was the Roman government, or maybe it was persecution from the Jewish religious leaders. If you, read the, if you read the letters, you'll see that they all had these different enemies that they were trying to fight against or respond to. Laodicea is told that they need to conquer, but there's no enemy in Laodicea. See, the enemy was themselves. The thing that they needed to conquer was their own pride. We will not find growth in our Christian life until we recognize that the biggest opponent to us in following Jesus Christ is ourselves. And that we need to conquer by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God according to the promises of God. We need to conquer that selfishness, that pride that's inside of all of us. To take ourselves off our throne and to think about what it means to dwell with Jesus as he sits on his throne. Then in verse 22, the letter ends like it does with all of the other letters. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Winston Churchill didn't like what he saw with his eyes. So the painting was destroyed. You may be here today, you may not like what you hear with your ears. Sometimes I hear things from God's word. Sometimes I hear things from my family. Sometimes I hear things from other Christians who love me. I don't always like what I hear. But at the end of the day, we've got to ask ourselves, is this coming from the amen? Is this coming from the faithful and true witness? Am I blinded by my own pride 
from being able to receive what is being said to me. Jesus is knocking. Do you hear his voice? Will you open the door to him? Will you swallow your pride and humble yourself before him? Jesus says that he will come and he will eat with us. We're going to close our service today by celebrating a communion. There's no way to combat pride like getting our eyes on the cross. Nothing humbles us in a more profound way than to think about the Son of God suffering and dying in our place. So let's bow our heads as we prepare to respond in worship by sharing in these symbols. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, and we thank you that your Spirit is here present among us. We thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves, to warn us about the dangers of our pride. And God, I thank you that because of your Son, Jesus Christ, because he himself became wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked, that we can be clothed in white garments. Because Jesus paid it all, we can have the, the treasure, the gold that's been refined from fire. And that we can see clearly ourselves and see you so clearly. And so God, I pray that you would help us. Be with us now as we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of your son. May we be humbled as we look at true humility as the Son of God who did not count equality with you a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, I pray that by your Spirit you would reveal to us our own sinful pride. But God, I pray that we wouldn't linger there long, but that we would flee to the cross and that our eyes would be off of our sin and on to our Savior who suffered and died. God, we pray that you would do this by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.